Hello, and welcome to Dr. Chris, the Surgery Guy. This is a podcast designed to talk about general surgery and reflux in particular, robotics, anything that, well, frankly interests me since I'm the host. I'm your host, Dr. Chris. Uh, I'm a board-certified general surgeon out of Texas, and I look forward to having conversations with other surgeons and people in the industry to talk about, well, anything that interests me. Uh, today, we're very excited to have Dr. Glenn Eide. He is also a board-certified general surgeon. I've known him for a number of years. Uh, we're both very passion- passionate about reflux and minimally invasive approaches to that. So with that, Dr. Eide, thank you very much for making the trip up from down south, and uh, Welcome. Thanks for having me, Chris. I appreciate the opportunity. So uh, just a little bit about your background here. Um, I was actually uh, looking up on one of the most recent articles, and I found you're actually on Amazon and published a book and stuff. But let's start before that. Uh, where'd you go to medical school? So I went to medical school at the University of Kansas in Kansas City. They have two campuses. So I went to the medical school in Kansas City and then did the residency down in uh, Wichita, Kansas. Beautiful part of the country. Yeah, <laughs> the Midwest. Yes, yes, indeed. All right. And then uh, residency was? Yeah, so residency was in Wichita, Kansas. Uh, I did five years there. And then immediately after residency came to Dallas and uh, uh, I joined a group there for about two and a half years. And then I went into bariatrics from there. And uh, I was with a group for about 18 months and then opened my own practice. And Wow. Ended up spending about 18 years uh, practicing in the Dallas Metroplex. Well, I didn't realize you went right into your own thing after only 18 months. That's uh, that's a well, lot. Well, there was there was a, a two years with a group and then 18 months with the bariatric group. And then okay. I went into practice. So I, almost four years before, you know, I'd learned the business of medicine. I'd sure. learned how to bill and you know, all that sort of stuff. But boy, that that's a lot still for, I mean, just to hang your own shingle and all the expenses that go with opening your practice and running it. Yeah, jump a, right out there. Yeah. Oof. doesn't quite work like that anymore. No. Yeah. So that would have been, let's see. So I can't remember. So like 2000 era? Yeah. I started in 98 and okay. uh, it was about 2000. It was mid 2001, 2002 when I uh, opened practice. It was a hospital I'd already been at. So... I had uh, doctors that were ready to refer to me and, um, well, that's, yeah, that's obviously key. <laughs> and I knew the hospital. So sure. Sure. Awesome. Well, okay. So then, so then take me into how does your practice shift from bariatrics, bariatric surgery to reflux surgery, or is that always a part or interest for you? Well, you know, I trained in an interesting period of time. We had just gotten past, you know, getting laparoscopic cholecystectomies in, and then they were really working on the more advanced laparoscopic things like laparoscopic colon resections, laparoscopic anisin fundoplications, laparoscopic splenectomies, diagnostic mm-hmm. laparoscopies, uh, small bowel obstructions, that sort of stuff. And so coming out, um, what I concentrated on is getting the skills to do, for instance, laparoscopic colons and laparoscopic anisin fundoplications. And so coming out, I thought, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to make a career out of being a reflux doctor doing this NISN fundoplication. It was fairly new. Mm-hmm. There was some... Well, the, the laparoscopic was The there. laparoscopic was new. The NISN had been around since the 1950s. But the laparoscopic, I think they, they published that about 94 or so. 
You know, uh, I love the history of medicine, and that's ugh, one of my passions. So, yeah, Dr. Nissen, interesting guy. I can have a whole show about that. Right. Uh, but really, um, I believe the first Nissens were starting to be, the first lap coli in the world was in France in like 89. Right. Uh, and I think it came to the United States in 90 or 91. Right. But the Nissen was like only 92. They went pretty quick to it. Yeah, they once, once they had the... Uh, really the, the the cameras and the equipment and stuff, then, you know, pretty quickly you can spread it to other procedures. And so we were sort of training to do these uh, advanced laparoscopic procedures along with the staff that were teaching us. And there right. were no, there were no fellowships at the time. So when I came out and I started, uh, I remember coming to one of the main hospitals in Dallas and doing a laparoscopic colon resection and they all lost their minds. I mean, they were, they were not happy about it because nobody else was doing it and they thought it was, you know, heresy. Right. And of course I was like, well, this is the way we're going to do it from now on, you know, jump on board. You know, that's interesting because really, uh, I couldn't remember where, um, having known you for a while, but yeah, I was literally beginning my surgery residency right when you were coming out. So, right. so I finished my residency in 2004 and we we're still kind of in that same era Right, right. Like the attendings had learned and there was good ones and there was ones that struggled a bit yeah, with it yeah, and sort of yeah. almost relied on the residents to a degree. But I think it's interesting now we're in 2020 and we're still not to the point really where everyone's doing colons in a minimally invasive way. Right. Well, the problem is, is that you have to develop very specific technical skills and you have to be taught kind of the tiny steps that go into that skill. And then... Instead of really developing that, what happened is we jumped forward to robotics mm-hmm. and robotics took the place of, you know, learning to hand suture and those sorts of things. And so it makes it much easier. There are some operations really that are superior with the robot. I mean, no, no doubt. No argument right, there. <laughs> right. And, but, you know, it expands the repertoire of, of procedures that can be done to folks that don't have that technical skill as well. You know, so it's, you know, it's interesting because, uh, having, uh, you know, I proctored for the, the robotics company, Da Vinci right. and, uh, intuitive and whatnot. And so, yeah, watching people on their skill set, um, boy, there's, there's still a big learning curve. Yeah. You know, yeah. Oh, there definitely is the, the hand eye stuff. And, uh, you know, it's, you can watch people and yes, you can do a lot with the robot, a lot that you can actually still open, you know, that you can't do really laparoscopically, not easily, not without a lot of skill. Right. There's a lot of, there's some very fine technical skill at the end that, that, um, is just, just not that many guys have. And so no, no, that's, and that's a whole subset. Really jumps them forward. And, and that's good because that brings more procedures to more people. Exactly. Exactly. So then around that time, then at what point did bariatrics start taking a back seat? To reflux or? Well, the story, so the story of reflux is when I came out is the year in which uh, reflux surgery took a nosedive in the United States because there were comparative studies between uh, medications and surgery and the outcomes were equivalent, but the surgeries were producing a lot of side effects, a lot of trouble with bloating and gassiness and uh, flatulence and trouble swallowing and those sorts of things. 
And there was a period of time in which there were an, a, an explosion of different laparoscopic techniques for doing the reflux procedure, but none of them solved any of the problems. Mm-hmm. And so basically, um, doctors quit referring reflux procedures to surgeons and instead starting using, using the medications for months at a time and then years at a time. And, and now we're at decades at a time. Yeah. Yeah. And lifelong. You know, right. And so we were told at the time, you know, there are no side effects to these medications are absolutely safe and we can use them forever. And so coming out, trying to be a reflux surgeon, uh, that wasn't going to work, but I had all these advanced laparoscopic skills. And so if you were in that time an advanced laparoscopic surgeon, what were you going to do with all these skills? Well, that's when bariatrics opened up. Right. And so people had been doing open ruin wise, but if you could do the dissection and the sewing and the stapling and the anastomosis and that sort of stuff laparoscopically, then boom, you could become a bariatric surgeon overnight. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I joined a clinic that was looking for somebody to become an open bariatric surgeon. But the deal I made with them is, well, I'll do this open, but eventually let's get to laparoscopic. And they made that commitment and then didn't follow through. And so that's I ended up leaving that group because I, I just saw that that was not going that direction. I would probably lose my laparoscopic skills if I didn't go back to doing them. Mm-hmm. And we had actually spent some time going to the training labs and learning to do the bariatric procedures laparoscopically, but were never able to do them uh, on patients. So, so I left, I went back to general surgery at this hospital and I told them, you know, we can start a bariatric program. And so then we started doing open bariatrics and the patients came to me and said, we want to do it laparoscopically. And I said, well, I spent the time training to do it. Let's do it. And if, you know, it's not working out, we convert to open and we'll finish your procedure. Well, we did our first laparoscopic ruin Y gastric bypass and never looked back. I mean, I think our first case was four hours and, you know, that was actually pretty quick back in those days. Right. Um, so then I spent um, maybe in the next almost eight years doing bariatrics as at least probably 80% of my practice. But I always in the back of my head was thinking about the Nissen fund application and when are we going to get something uh, that we can replace that with. And I had gone to a conference in Telluride. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a conference on endoluminal procedures, and, and there were a bunch of different ones, but one of them was transoral fun, fundoplication TIF. Okay. And uh, I came home and I said, well, man, I'm going to do that. And uh, I tried to get a hold of the rep, and the rep uh, basically said, well, if you're not doing Nissens right now, we're not going to train you to do TIF. So about two years went by, and um, that rep lost his job because he, there was nobody doing Nissens. And the next rep was like, Hey, listen, I'll, I'll, I'll bring you and train you and let's see if we can't get something started. So I went and got trained and I came back and we had set up a couple of patients. And then I started getting some calls from other surgeons that were like, Hey, I've got this patient. They don't want a Nissen because by that time Nissen had gotten a bad name. Mm-hmm. And the internet was kind of newish, and people were reading about it on the internet. They didn't want an Nissen, but 
this TIF alternative was there. And so they're like, you know, can I ship my patient to you, you know, a hundred miles away and you do the TIF and see how they do. So pretty quickly, almost overnight, we had a, a large number of patients that wanted to be treated with this technology and the rest is history. Wow. That's, uh, it's interesting how, um, you know, uh, Dr. Heidi, just so you don't know, at last I saw you've done over 600 TIFs. Um, does it, do you have an update number on that? Do well, you know we're, we're past 700 somewhere. Wow. I, I'm not sure where, but somewhere past. Somewhere in that ballpark. Yeah. And uh, I've been doing them. I think I started doing them when you were at about two or 300. And I have not been quite as busy as you've been, but I've gotten kind of over to the 300 mark. And, uh, my story is just a little bit different by then the company had grown a little bit, but then, um, I was doing Nissan's and it was interesting how different things are. I was part of a four man group and for whatever reason, they didn't like Heidel hernia repairs or Nissan's. They just didn't like taking care of the patients. They yeah. didn't. And I had trained at a program, uh, where there was one guy in particular in, in Denver that did a lot of Nissan. So I had done a lot of Nissan's and I like doing them. I always, it's a very fun operation for those that don't operate or don't know. It's, it's actually yeah, a very it's, fun it operation. It is a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, and pretty rewarding except for exactly what Dr. Idy's talking about, which is the side effects. And so what would happen is they would get referred to Nissan and they'd kind of pass it off to me thinking they're, you know, the, the junior partners getting the, the, the crud work, if you will. Right. Uh, but doing what I like to do is like the, the pig and poop, if you want. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, um, so I started doing them. And then because I was doing them, the GI docs, you know, even though they really did pump pills from the majority of their patients, there's always that subset of patients that either had a failure to thrive because of recurrent pneumonias or, you know, the large parasophageal type hernias where a lot of the stomach's up in the chest that didn't respond to medications. Yeah. They would just get no response at all and they would be miserable and then they would make their gastroenterologist miserable. And so they would send them to me. Right. So we got the, the worst patients. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But in doing that, I was doing two or maybe even three a month sometimes. It's pretty good. Yeah. For that, for you're literally talking like 2006, 2007. Yeah, for, that, for that era, oh, almost yeah. nobody was doing Nissan's. And so the company, Endogastric Solutions, they actually contacted me and were like, hey, check this out. I went out to San Francisco, did the the lab where we kind of experienced the, the, and I really, really liked the rap that it, it performed, which we will talk about in a bit. But yeah. so then, then I started doing them kind of with the same idea where you were talking about with the bariatric a second ago, where I didn't really like how it's coming out. I could still just do a Nissen. Right. So probably my first, mm, God, I, I want to say maybe 15 or 20 patients. It was like, we're going to try to do the TIF, but if I don't like it, you're consented for a Nissen as yeah. well. If it doesn't look good, I'm at least going to give you a good operation. Right. Yeah. And, and again, one of the advantages, you're really not burning any bridges. So I always felt like if they just didn't do well with it, even postoperatively, I still could come back and do a wrap or something if we needed right. to. Right. But long story short, those patients did extremely well. And I don't like what you're saying. I kind of never looked back and yeah, done a lot of TIFs as well. So yeah, interesting, interesting sort of slightly different stories to the same point. Um, so now that doing 700 and we've gone through at this point in the evolution of the TIF procedure, which I know you and I have similar approaches and part of it, but at the same time, some of the things we do are just a little bit different. Sure. Um, 
the TIF procedure initially, it's indicated for patients with a hiatal hernia less than two centimeters. And I think they've expanded it to three now. Well, it was interesting. When it first started out, they would say uh, less than two centimeters, but they didn't say whether that meant two centimeters wide or two centimeters tall. Right. And initially the rep was, well, you know, two centimeters tall because they're getting the x-rays and that's how you tell if they have a hiatal hernia. And I was like, well, really we're using endoscopy to do that measurement. So we would go and we would operate on patients in which it was not very tall, but very wide. And that's when we realized that those patients were not doing very well. They had early failures. And so um, there was actually a user meeting. I don't know if you were at that one in 2009 here in Dallas. And there was a bunch of discussion about the hiatus. And a guy had suggested, well, maybe what we ought to do is laparoscopically repair it and then do the fundoplication through the TIF procedure. So for people that don't understand, the reflux is controlled through two things, the esophageal hiatus, which is the opening of the diaphragm, the esophagus passes through, and then the fundoplication or the fold or the, the flap valve, which, which technically we call the angle of hiss. And those two things, they both have to be intact, otherwise it doesn't work. You get fluid in the stomach that leaks past an intact hiatal hernia repair if you don't have the fundoplication. If you have the fundoplication, but it moves up and through the hiatus into the chest, the negative pressure of the chest opens mm-hmm. the fundoplication, so they get reflux. So it's about a 50% failure rate. Almost exactly. Right. Now that study's totally been done where uh, a hiatal hernia by itself controls reflux in about 50%, 50% of the- right. Yeah. That was actually one of the original, I think Allison's original paper on hiatal hernia repairs. And they didn't know anything about it. They were just um, they were just repairing the hiatus because it, it looked too big, you know. And so we lived through that experience again. We were doing the fun applications, but we could tell there was a hiatal hernia there, and people were uh, failing at about a fifty percent rate. So we started doing the laparoscopic repair, like we had discussed at the meeting, mm-hmm. and then would immediately do the TIF and. When we compared the results, I think it was about 25 patients versus 25 patients, we could see about a 50% improvement in outcomes, meaning we were at about 50%, and I think we moved up to about 80%. Um, So still 20%, we were trying to figure out why they weren't doing well, but from 50% to 80% was a pretty good jump. And so that's how we ended up doing hiatal hernia repairs and then fund applications. so how, how long into that experience was that for you? 50 patients, 100? Yeah, so uh, the first 26 or 27 patients took me about, oh, I think eight months or so. And then we had that meeting. And so they were just going through then their six-month follow-up. And that's when we saw, oh, my gosh, you know, some of these people have an intact fund application, but it is way up in a hiatal hernia. And, of course, they were symptomatic. Mm-hmm. And so that's when we're like, well, we're going to go ahead and start repairing these when they're that big, when we could tell they're that big. And then what we didn't realize at the time is we there was never a standard way to measure or describe a hiatal hernia, there was kind of this classification scheme we call the the Hill classification. Absolutely. Um, and although it had been out there, nobody really used it until we started doing this thing, this TIF thing. And then 
it really didn't get used until we realized, well, if you're past a hill grade three, maybe into a hill four, large hill three, or maybe hill four, then yeah, you should go ahead and repair those. And that's about the time Chris and I met. Yeah, no, uh, literally maybe three months before we sat in a room and tried to compare uh, hill classification versus standard, sort of more of a laparoscopic view. Right. And turned out those don't correlate all that great. <laughs> yeah, so, so it was interesting because the rep in town was trying to get more people doing TIFF, and so she had brought... Um, four or five of us together for dinner and we brought some papers and we talked about our experience and that sort of stuff. And I sort of had been, I had been filming Mm -hmm. all of the procedures and I thought, Oh, I'm going to use this group. (laughs) So I I took and cut the procedures down to about 30 second spots where people could judge what was going on. And, And the first thing that we all realized, and it was kind of an aha moment is that if I said it was a hill four, the next guy thought it was a hill three, and the next guy thought it was a hill two. Right. Then if I said it was a hill two, the next guy thought it was a hill three, and the next guy thought it was a hill four. So we were using a language that nobody Spoke. had a standard definition for. Right, right. And and that's when we realized, ah, that's the problem. Right. Is that we're, we're not all on the same page. Yeah, it's interesting, because yeah, right around that time, um, sort of the the company and the, the the procedure itself, the TIF procedure was still at two centimeters or less of a hiatal hernia. And they did not recommend a TIF procedure if that hiatal hernia was larger than two centimeters. Well, they couldn't because right. the FDA has these requirements about what they can say and what they can't say. And they had not done the research. And the only paper that had been published was the paper I I put out in 2011 and then that's when right after that paper is when with this group got started and then we started looking into all these other variables so then when I got going with it we just almost universally because at least sort of in my practice and the patients that come to see me by the time someone comes to see a surgeon for their reflux my experience has been that most of them have a repairable hiatal hernia yeah, and they had tried everything else. I mean, right. we were the last resort. Right, yeah, no, absolutely. Like, sort of more of the end-stage patients. And so, realistically, I did try to do some TIF procedures on a little bit larger hiatal hernias that we saw. And, of course, had sort of the same experience you did where, yeah, they did great for maybe four or five months and then kind of tended to recur. And then we'd go back and repair their hiatal hernia, and they did great. Um, and then that's right about the time that I got very involved with robotics. And so then I started doing the hiatal hernia repair robotically. And then this is def- definitely one of the things Dr. Uh, Idy and I disagree on a little bit is uh, I really like the employment of mesh, uh, biosynthetic mesh at the hiatus. And that's not something you do still, yeah, I don't think. Yeah, no, I, I had tried it for a little bit, but I just did not have a good experience. And I had a couple of patients that had you know, some stricturing around. And, sure. and so I was just like, well, I'm just not going to do that. So yeah, let, let's come back to that a little bit here okay. in a bit, but it was, uh, yeah, it's kind of interesting. So, uh, Dr. I have had, uh, fun, vigorous, uh, debates over the years uh, about that exact subject. And, uh, I think robotics too, a little bit, although you're not a you, you still support robotics, but you've always done them laparoscopically and still do them that way or do you do them robotically now? Yeah. So I, I became robotic trained. I was a late con- convert, um, but I became robotically trained and I've done some hodl repairs with the robot, but frankly, I've been doing them so long right. 
laparoscopically that I'm I'm actually faster doing them laparoscopically. So interesting. Yeah, yeah. So I'd, I'd rather do them laparoscopically. That's one of those things. It's uh, Dr. Hardy and I are both old enough, at least with the TIF procedure, to. I think you probably do, do too, kind of, while the new device is revolutionary and not unlike what you said with the oh, robotics, man. Yeah, but there's times I miss the old one. <laughs> I don't know if you have that experience at all. No, I don't. Really? The, the old device was, so just so everybody knows, the old device right. was hand-loaded, hand-fired, not that one, one at a time. Not that device. Right. And then they went to a cartridge design, right. and that's, that's, that's kind of where we started using both of us. Right. And, uh, but it was still, you know, it, well, there's challenges. It was very hard to create a reproducible fund application and the people that did well, uh, Chris and I, and, and a few others were the ones that learned all the little tricks of the trade to make the fund application come out. Right. And, and frankly, the learning curve was quite steep at that point. The, yeah. You know, I, at the time, I remember kind of thinking, if my patients weren't doing well, I wouldn't go through the trouble. Right. And so the problem is, the pa- well, not the problem. I mean, the good thing was the patients were doing great. They were doing great. And so you're just like, oh, okay. But at the same time, at least at first, for me, I think my first one took me like an hour, maybe an hour and 20 minutes. Right. And then I got it shaved down for a little bit. And then even with the more cumbersome device, uh, I think I got it down to... 25, 30 minutes-ish. Yeah. But um, the, the real problem was the company couldn't get anybody else to adopt it. So right. we were out there on our own. Right. I mean, we were kind of doing this thing that nobody else could, could do. do. Right. And so then their feedback was, you guys are all crazy. We don't know what you're doing. This will never work. And to the company's credit, they continued to work on the device. They made incremental improvements in the mechanics and now the device that that we use really produces a very uh reproducible identical fun application every time at least in my experience oh no I, I i totally agree with that i think the the trials and tribulations that i had with the uh the z device that we we use now is you know at first it was like we had to use these tiny little scopes with it so the vision was terrible right so the, the device was easier to scopes, use yeah comma if you could see um and so then yeah it was really really easy to use as long as you could see um and then, then we got to the point where we could use like one scope that you could see with, but if you didn't, if your place didn't, if your hospital didn't have that scope, you were kind of out of luck and you had to talk them into buying the scope yeah. or at least borrowing it. And then, well, and the scopes were advancing in technology. So of course, right. if you wanted that scope, it was going to cost your hospital a lot of money. Exactly. And so they weren't necessarily excited about that. No, no, they weren't. And then, but yeah, now we have a device that is much, much easier to use. And, you know, in, uh, you know, there's still a little bit of tricks and trades, but there's, they're not as hard to learn. Yeah. And right. So, so it's, it, you can teach somebody to do this pretty easily. Yeah. Pretty quickly. So a learning curve that used to be maybe 40 or 50 patients is down to like five. Right. Yeah. So that it's, it is generally, uh, although, you know, maybe I'm just getting older, but I still have some, but well, we've been doing it for a while. Right. Right. I miss the 
kind of the individual control occasion that you would get with that 360. Right. It's the art of making yeah, yeah. it exactly the way you want it to look like. Right. But the fact that, uh, you know, now it's got a covered firing mechanism, you can do two at once. I mean, they're, they're, they've made tremendous advancements. And their yeah. engineers, they're extremely responsive. I mean, they've literally, like even early in my experience when I hadn't done as many, they literally would fly the engineers out uh, to, well, maybe it's just because we were practicing in the same city, but they would actually meet with us and like, well, what's this? What do you think about this? Yep. And they'd show us like samples to this is how things work. And what do you think about this? And yeah, it was, they're, they're really responsive and I definitely give them credit for that. So um, let's change gears just a little bit and talk. You've talked a lot about some of the history and stuff and um, I, I could do that for hours actually, but in terms of talking to patients, you know, um, something that I think there's a lot of disagreement with in terms of the community, in terms of the surgeons, in terms of the, the people that are doing reflux work, Take me through what your workup is. Okay, so when you talk to a patient, and let's assume in this setting, it's someone that really has it's sort of a self-referral type patient. They don't really have a whole lot to them. It's, Doc, I've got heartburn. Yeah, well, so you have to remember that the main rule is that if you do a reflux operation on somebody who doesn't have reflux, that operation is not going to work. And so what people don't understand is that there are symptoms of reflux that cross over a bunch of other disease processes. So you have pain, you have even the heartburn itself, regurgitation could be stomach issues, could be gallbladder issues, can be something as simple as gastritis. And so you got to investigate all those things. And then at first, um, you would have to kind of do an endoscopy to look and see if they had reflux changes and then come back and try to do follow-up studies that would uh, diagnose that. But a lot of that technology has matured as well. So these days what we do is I use a validated survey and, and patients will answer questions about their symptoms that are very specific about the, the type of symptom and how bad it is. And then if you reach a certain score, then it's validated to say, yes, this is reflux. Then that patient I will take and do three studies on. First is the, and they're done all at the same time, uh, the endoscopy in which you go and look and do biopsies and do measurements of the hiatal opening and where the esophagus is, where it ends, where the stomach starts. Um, I will do a manometry type procedure that rules out achalasia. Mm-hmm. And I will do a pH study. So the pH study tells you for sure if there's acid getting into the esophagus. You are not supposed to operate on people that have a condition called achalasia. And in the past, it would be a separate test, but they have a new test that you can do at the time of endoscopy. So that that becomes a very efficient workup. And then in addition to those three procedures, I'll send them to radiology to get a gastric emptying study because about 20% of the reflux patients will also have delayed gastric emptying. And it feels and kind of looks sometimes like reflux, but it's in, in fact a different disease process with a completely different treatment plan. 
And then the other thing I'll do is I will send them for a gallbladder scan called a HIDA scan, and it measures the actual function of the gallbladder. Because again, there's maybe 15% of patients in which the gallbladder isn't functioning correctly, and you can correct the reflux by doing a HIDA repair and a TIF, but then they'll still be a little bit symptomatic. There'll be a little bit regurgitation, a little bit bloaty, and you'll be like, oh, I wonder what's going on. And then you'll get a HIDA scan and find out the gallbladder is not working. So my approach is if I'm going to be in there working on the diaphragm to repair the hiatus anyway, another five minutes I can take out the gallbladder and it saves them uh, a trip to the hospital, another anesthesia, another operation, another, Mm -hmm. you know, out of pocket. So going through that then, endoscopy with um, the uh, achalasia, yeah. Sitch. That's kind of two in one. Um, a gastric emptying study, gallbladder study, and a pH probe. Yeah. And so the pH probe is the, the Bravo uh, mm-hmm. telemetry probe that you put in at the time of endoscopy. So, And that literally measures the amount of acid the esophagus sees over basically a 48-hour period. Yeah, we, we now use the four-day Bravo. Yep. So a four-day period of time increases the sensitivity by about 20%. So you're you're picking up a few people that we might have missed. Otherwise missed. Yeah, and, and for those that don't know, that's basically a little implant in the esophagus, and it literally measures the pH, like just physically like you would in a chemistry class. And uh, it's actually attached to a little almost beeper that you wear. And then when you have symptoms, you can literally hit some buttons. There's two or three different ones you can hit in terms of pain or heartburn or whatever and then that correlates they can correlate that with the ph study so it's a, it's a great test it really yeah, yeah. is yeah it's very but, nice yeah so um anyway so interesting and then upper gi or no no i'm not doing upper gis anymore interesting yeah because i'm measuring the hiatal hernia defect with the endoscope mm-hmm. and um the esophageal function we're looking at with the endoflip device. So it's sort of like manometry. It's not, uh, it doesn't measure exactly everything that manometry does, but if you've done enough manometry, you can see uh, motility issues right. just looking at the, the schematics. And then, you know, you just, you want to know whether they have achalasia or not. And that's basically what it's designed to rule out. So, I mean, that's definitely a very complete approach, and uh, I certainly couldn't throw stones at it in any way, shape, or form. My question to you, I wonder, do you ever have problems with uh, something, I I think of it, I call it patient fatigue, where the patient comes in and they're like, ugh, I just, I feel terrible, I've got... You know, I've got pain, I've got, you know, whatever the symptoms might be, pain and, and heartburn, and, you know, occasionally I have a trouble swallowing. And I guess then, so those people get all those tests, and then, and, they, and again, no problem with the workup, right? I mean, medically, I think that is, that's a great workup. But do you ever have patients that just are like, they just either can't do it, either financially, or they're just like, they kind of get maybe a month into do one of the tests and then you can't get them scheduled for the second or third. Um, do you have that problem or? Well, it used to be that way because um, the manometry and even the pH was separate. So we would do the upper endoscopy and they'd have to come back and do a pH probe that went through the nose. Right. Oh, yeah. Right. And yeah, before we heard the that, Bravo. Right. That for two days. And then they'd have to come back and do another through the nose catheter to do the manometry. And then they'd have to come back again to the, do the gastric emptying study and then again to get the HIDA scan. So that was five visits. Mm-hmm. Plus, they'd have to see me 
initially. That's six visits. And then they'd have to see me after they finished all that. That's seven visits. Right. And then they'd schedule a surgery. So seven visits before you got to surgery. And and that does produce fatigue. And we had a lot of patients that were like, I'm just not going to do that. And I said, well, I can't operate on you unless I really know that this is reflux and there isn't anything else to address or anything else that's going to sneak up on us. But now, because you can combine the three of them at one endoscopy, right. we've, we've dropped it down basically to a pre-op visit, three hospital visits, and then a post-op visit. And most of my patients are able to get through that. Yeah, it's interesting. And, you know, and again, in 2020, uh, and for longer than that too, but um, in 2020 anyway, the amount of patients that have actually already had their gallbladder out is pretty significant because as you said, those, uh, those things do overlap a little bit. Right. And so it's pretty common for them to have already gotten their gallbladder out, uh, based on. So yeah, ba- just based on, you know, they saw their primary care doc, they had epigastric pain, they got a quick ultrasound, they found a stone, they went off to see a surgeon maybe not us, but right. Yeah. Right. And so, yeah, so I mean, I could see that as well. Six months later, they're back because right, you right. Know, the, their real issue was kind of this heartburn regurgitation, heartburn. Sure. That's interesting. I, I, uh, I'll throw you out what I do and, uh, I'll let you throw stones at it. That's, that's no problem. Sure, sure, no problem. So, uh, so first of all, I booked these patients for about 45 minutes, uh, for the first initial visit, particularly the ones that are not referred when they get referred by a GI doctor, they kind of tend to have a lot of the stuff already done. Uh, um, and so, you know, I'm not as, I don't necessarily schedule them for quite as long, but someone that comes through either because they found me on the web or they've made a self-referral or whatever, I said, I talk to them forever. So the PA, our PA talks to them for about maybe 10 or 15 minutes and kind of gets their juices rolling, if you will, in terms yeah. of talking about themselves. Uh, and I find that tremendously helpful just in warming up the patient about they start jogging their memories. They talk, you know, it's kind of that thing when we, we learned in medical school, you know, you tell the medical student, then you tell the resident and then the attending got the real story. Right. 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 <laughs> so it's kind of like that. And so, so my PA talks to them uh, and she's great at it. And then, then I'll come in and talk to them. And I talk to them probably for about 30 minutes. And we talk about their symptoms. We go through specifically like every detail. Like I, I make them go through kind of a day. Like when do you get these symptoms? What causes them? What makes them, you know, every last detail. Do you get bloating? Do you have to wake up in the middle of the night? Do you sleep on pillows? You know, do you choke? I mean, you know, all these things. And, you know, having done this for a long time now, not as long as you, but still quite a long time because I'm old. <laughs> um, I've kind of picked up the ability to kind of tease out the ones that are pretty straightforward and those that aren't. Exactly. And so what I tell them is, well, we're going to start with an upper GI. So an upper GI x-ray, they literally just, they drink the barium and we watch it go down and either watch it come up or not. Right. And I kind of think of it like it gives me, it's a poor man's study for a lot of other things too. It's not the best test for reflux, sure, but it will show it. It's not the best test for a hiatal hernia, but it will show it. Right. It's not really a very good test for gastric emptying at all, but if the stomach doesn't clear at all, it gives me some information. You're able to tease out some things from that. Right. Right. Exactly. And so then I also get, I get a sense of their esophageal motility as well. Right. So I'm really getting a lot of information for pretty cheap. It's a test that most people are able to afford because in 2020, obviously it would depend on your copay, but they can usually do that for less than a couple hundred bucks. 
And so if their story is classic and there's not anything real exciting, you know, they don't really have bloating, their stomach clears, good esophageal motility. I'll be honest with you. We, we document the reflux and then they're going to get a scope the day of surgery anyway. And we're off. Yeah. And then, but, but at the same time, because I'm listening, if there's something weird, if there's something that's not typical, if they've got bloating, if they really talk more about pain after the, uh, after they eat more kind of leading me more down the gallbladder, but yeah, we'll pull out the other test. You know, if they talk a lot more and just this last year, I uncovered an achalasia from that. Yeah. So literally she was just kind of, she was talking about her reflux and I was listening to her real, real carefully. And I just, wait a minute, you're not having gastroesophageal reflux. You're having stuff coming back up because it doesn't go down. Right. It's not yeah. clearing the esophagus. Right. Right. And so, and I, you know, this isn't really a term, but I've always called that esophago, esophago reflux, you know? And so, uh, anyway, so yeah, we picked that up. Sure enough, when the, on the upper GI, it showed a bird's beak thing and, and nice. we did a Heller model my honors, yeah. uh, which is just the, the treatment for achalasia. But anyway, I, you know, and I, it's interesting because over those, well, God, it's been 13 years now, I guess. We haven't missed a lot. It's interesting, right. but that's, right. uh, that might be hard to teach. I'm going to, you know, that would be something that, that comes with experience. That comes with taking care of these patients for a long time. But I find that patient fatigue is... It's a problem. It's a problem. And your workup is nice because what you're really doing is sort of like what I've done with the endoflip is I'm not sending them for a full manometry, but I'm using a screening exam to sort of guide me who really needs the full manometry and who doesn't. Because if I see something on that uh, Mm -hmm. schematic and it doesn't look right, even if they don't have achalasia, I'm going to send them for full manometry to find out, you know, what is their motility disorder? Uh, how would it be classified? Now, the problem is there aren't any real treatments for any of those things. But, you know, at least I can say, yeah, you know, you may have some trouble afterwards. But when you're doing the same thing with that upper GI. Mm-hmm. And you're right. It's not expensive. It's And it's a test that everybody knows and everybody's seen. Right. So you can put it in front of them and they're going to pick up exactly what you pick up. Well, oh yeah. And they usually come back to me because then the radiologist will come in and say, yes, ma'am, you have uh, you have reflux. Uh, we, we can see that going all the way up yeah. to your, to your uh, well, to cervical your esophagus yeah. or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and that gives them a lot of confidence sort of in the diagnosis, which isn't any, I mean, that's not nothing. Uh, that's something that's kind of important too. Um, no, but I, it is interesting because I, as I've talked to lots of people and, and Glenn and I have gone to a number of conferences together where uh, we meet people that, uh, you know, like me, I'm a, uh, you know, I'm a community general surgeon and I just kind of treat patients and, you know, I, I keep up on the research, but at the same time, like I'm not producing research and I'm just trying to take care of patients. I'm right. trying to be somewhat efficient so that a patients don't get too fatigued and ideally we give them the right operation. Um, and then we meet academics that they automatically get the, the gigantic panel of, of testing. Yeah. And we need those people. Yeah. Uh, we absolutely need those people because if they're not doing that, then we don't get the information so that we can, you know, learn what the best thing is in any given situation. So it, it's just interesting to me as we, as we go through this. And then there's our GI friends that, you know, they, since it's an endoscopic procedure, some of them do TIF as well. And there's a lot of GIs doing it now. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and uh, as they kind of get involved in it, it's interesting how some of their perspectives have changed a little bit too. But their workups just even a little bit different, and they have, they have different terms. Uh, they talk a lot more about the lower esophageal sphincter than we do, right? Uh, but 
that's okay. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's something that, uh, it's, it's funny. I've always, you know, the lower esophageal sphincter meets a pressure change that you see on manometry is right. basically what it is. And in my mind, that's always equated to the intra-abdominal esophagus. That's the pressure change I feel like you see, right? So that as you drop that pressure from the esophagus into the stomach or into the abdomen, rather, you see that, uh, that pressure change. And that's, that's kind of what I've always felt because there's not really a round muscle. There's not a sphincter there. And that's, that's one of the things that gets confusing, right? It's it's sort of a generational thing is that you and I were trained in a different era. A lot of these gastroenterologists were trained after Nissen's went away. They only believe in medications. And then there's also a lot of, kind of iffy stuff out there about how all this works and in terms of the physiology that they sort of believe in but there really isn't any literature to support and so you're right they come at it from a different perspective but it's because that's the way they were trained sure and they didn't get the experiences that that we had 10 years before they were trained. Right. And for, for patients that might be listening, the uh, training to be a GI doctor is quite different from being a surgeon. Um, that's not to say they don't get well-trained because they absolutely do. But the difference is that general surgery uh, that Dr. I are trained in, not only four years of medical school, but then it's a five-year general surgery training program. Whereas GI, typically it's a three-year internal medicine program followed by a two-year GI fellowship. Right. And so while um, it's just a different perspective, it's just surgeons, we have this sort of anatomic approach. We have, you know, sort of the the physiology of how things move through the body. And we think about mechanics a lot lot more. It's the mechanical means versus the internal medicine docs. Their expertise really lies much more in the actual physiology and how the body works chemically. Right. And And how medicines manipulate that. Right. And you need all those things. Um, and so, but it is, it is interesting to see the different perspective, but, um, yeah, I think sort of the other reason I kind of go with, I don't want to say abbreviated, but maybe just a different targeted approach. I think targeted approach would be kind of my approach to the workup of the patient is that, you know, sometimes patients can get a a confusing message, particularly from a GI doc that doesn't necessarily subscribe to anatomic repair of reflux. Right. And that's what I meant by the generational part. If these guys were trained after 98, basically, they were taught that, you know, medicines that's the only thing that works and that really it's like a religion for them and just like you know for us surgery is a religion for us because that's what we believe in otherwise we wouldn't do it right uh they're coming from the opposite is that they were trained that medicines are the only thing that you give because surgery's got too many problems and it's very hard to explain to them that we have overcome some of those side effects now yeah and that's that's great to bring that back home is that's exactly right because realistically the study that did compare nissen to medicine uh, the traditional fund application, there were problems and the side effect profile was too high for the results they were actually getting. And, you know, bringing it back home there, I, when I was in training, when I was a, a medical student, one of the residents had actually just had a Nissen. Oh yeah. Yeah. And so she was about eight months out. She was a third year resident at the time. And I, I wasn't there when she got the Nissen, so I don't know what sort of her workup was and how bad her symptoms were. But just from talking to her, as we we're talking about Nissen's, it was kind of like, well, you know, how's it going? She's like, well, I don't have reflux, so that's good. 
And then, um, you know, as we finish our meals, she's still working on it. Uh, and, uh, she can't get it down. She can't get it down quite fast enough. And, you know, basically when we talked to her about it and she was, she was really nice. She was really great about it, opening up about it, but basically it, it just, the side effects weren't worth it to her. Right. And for me, kind of going through the history of it, you know, back when Nissan fund application was an open procedure, right. The only people that really did that were people that were end stage reflux. Yeah, severe. They couldn't. They couldn't exist anymore. Right. And so to take what was sometimes a combined thoracoabdominal approach or a large midline incision or a thoracic incision, which again for the for the patients out there, although sometimes necessary, a painful incision. Yes. Um, then. Uh, yeah, they just only the really, really severe got it. So then when they had their reflux was cured or much, much better, the side effects were, yeah, okay, fine. The side, there are some side effects, but I don't care. I'm not miserable anymore. I'm not getting recurrent pneumonia. I'm not in the ICU all the time. And so, yeah, the incision hurt. It took me a couple months to get over, but I'm better. Exactly. So then going back to the history that we were talking about earlier in 1989, we did laparoscopic stuff, gallbladders first, and then quickly on to Nissen's. Then it's like, well, wait a minute. Now we can help more people because we're surgeons. We can offer a procedure that previously was fairly morbid and now we can do it not so morbid. And I think it got opened up to too many people. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think you had people going like, this is a great operation. We can cure reflux. We can get people off of, well, at the time, H2 up, H2 blockers and, and, uh, and a little bit of PPIs. Uh, but then later, obviously a lot of PPIs. And then those people that just had bothersome reflux, but that might be controlled with pills or maybe didn't want to take the pills or maybe they occasionally had symptoms. Now you take them and it's like, well, okay, great. I don't have reflux, but swallowing is a problem. Right. I passed gas way too much or now I'm bloated. Well, and, and to your point, when we were doing open Nissens, there just weren't that many patients getting the operation. But when we went to laparoscopic, there were a lot of patients. So now you have a much broader kind of um, group to select from to to get those kinds of complaints. Right. right. And so yeah. the numbers were... So the side effect profile just has to be better when there's yeah, more patients. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so now, now that we have TIF, now that we have something that, that in the correct patient can be no incisions whatsoever, or maybe hiatal incisions, but still short term. Yeah. There's a little bit, and we have to kind of get them through the diet and we kind of work through some, you know, some liquids and, you know, I tell them anything that can go through a straw to start with. And then we kind of move on to soft and slippery. And again, I'm a simple guy. I, I tell them anything you could eat without teeth. And if you couldn't make any spit <laughs> and uh, most people can understand that because they always want to know, I used to find, I used to do a pamphlet. You probably did it too. You yeah, give yeah. them the pamphlet and this is what you can eat. And then generally I'd get a phone call, you know, what does soft fish mean? Or, you know, okay, it says, it says I can have water, but can I have coffee? You know, and it, honestly, the, the, the pamphlet. I, w- I went through the exact same thing. And the more information you gave them, the more questions they had. So I went back what? to very simple things. If you can pour it from one glass to another, you can drink it. Oh, yeah. If, I like that. Uh, if you can uh, puree it like baby food, you can eat it the next stage. Next stage, if it's soft, if you can smash it with a fork, then you can eat it. Okay. And then I go to a modified regular diet where they can eat anything that they chew except for chicken, beef, 
bread, rice, and, and down south here in Texas, tortillas. Oh, yeah. So yeah. those five things you got to stay off for another week, and then you can eat whatever after that. And, and that works out for most people. Yeah. Most patients. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, I say the exact same thing, but I use the. Uh, I, I like to make them laugh. I like to make pa- my patients laugh. I'm, I think yeah. I must be a uh, a frustrated comedian in some life <laughs> because basically, uh, you know, we talk about the straw thing. And that's pretty simple. And they ask questions. I'm like, listen, ask yourself, can I suck it through a straw? Yes. Yeah. Then the answer is yes. Yeah. And the only thing I tell them is you can't take a long noodle and suck it through the straw. And then, <laughs> and then we go through the second stage, which is the no teeth uh, and no spit diet. And then I kind of give them like a couple examples. And for me, it, kids mac and cheese is a really good example there. Uh, most soups, as long as they're not big giant things. Uh, and then we talk about um, the next stage being soft and moist. So again, now you can make spit, but you still don't have teeth. <laughs> And then, uh, and then, yeah, just like you, then I move on to uh, basically regular food as long as it's still somewhat moist, really try and avoid those dry things because unfortunately, and I know you know this, but for the audience, um, the dry foods, unfortunately, they'll, they'll literally soak up the lubrication in the esophagus and just make it hard to pass as everything heals from what we've done during surgery. But the nice thing is because the device itself is actually a dilator and we can't literally almost just can't make it too tight. You can't make it too small. Um, then frankly, it always gets better. And you know, it's variable. Some people have just a little bit more scarring. It takes a little bit longer. Some people get through a little bit quicker. I had one lady that showed up a week later and I was like asking how she was doing. She was like, I'm great. No heartburn. I had chicken. What kind of chicken? Fried chicken. Okay. Well, you're, you're done. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and I, I've talked to patients, they'll, they'll come and they ask me about, well, if I skip ahead, cause you know, they want to. Oh yeah. Everyone, everyone cheats yeah, just a little wants to cheat. bit. You know, yeah. if I skip ahead, am I going to ruin this and have to go through it again? And I tell them, I don't think you're going to ruin it, but I explain it like this. The esophagus is a muscle and just like every other muscle, it has to uh, do its work. And we talked a little bit but about the LES, and I think that the LES pressure, the closing pressure of the esophagus decreases when they have reflux. And so the muscle really isn't working against anything. It's sort of wide open and stuff sort of falls through. But then the day after surgery, suddenly they have a super valve. It's, it's a super high pressure. And so the esophagus is weak and it's not as well coordinated as maybe it should be. And so in my, in my mind, the progressive diet is a rehab program for Mm. the esophagus. I get it. Okay. Exercising the esophagus initially with liquids and something a little bit thicker then something a little bit thicker. And then also coordinating the swallows. And, and one of the things that I think is validating that is when we do this endo flip manometry and you see the way they swallow. And I was just doing one earlier today and I'm like, man, her swallowing function is a lot better than it was pre-op. You can see the difference in the way in which the contraction is is moving or propagating down the esophagus. So, so, so there you go, ladies and gentlemen. It literally, not only does it help with reflux, but it is esophageal physical therapy. There you go. That, I like that's it. That's it exactly. No, I like that. I like that idea, actually, because, you know, it, I... I think I heard you say that a couple of years ago, but realistically, I've always thought of it as just the scarring and sort of right after surgery, there's some scarring. So things are tight and then it just kind of loosens up. I guess I've sort of been a little bit negligent thinking about actual esophageal contractility. Well, and you're right about the scarring because when we do the endoflip, the other thing we'll see is these bands of pressure mm-hmm. in which the esophagus really is not 
uh, relaxing very well or contracting very well, or it'll be a focus of spasm that we'll see. And uh, I'll tell that patient, I'll say, listen, you may have trouble swallowing afterwards. And if you do, we get six weeks post-op. We'll go in and we'll dilate that. So just like if you have trouble swallowing preoperatively and you see a gastroenterologist, they'll go balloon that or stretch it out. Postoperatively, we may still have to do that because that scar tissue isn't so much from the procedure, but it's from the years and years and years of bad reflux that they've had. Right. And that's not going to get better unless we do something about it. You may prevent it from getting worse, but you still have to go stretch out that area of fibrosis. Yeah, it's interesting. Over over the years, I've gotten, I feel like I've only had to dilate maybe two patients. Not, not too many. Not no. Too many. And because it's, it's a rarity, really. It, it really is. I, because I, I think, and I think in those patients, and both of them happen to be young. And so I don't think they had the huge issue with, um, the esophageal contractility part of it. I think it had more to do with them for, for whatever reason, just hyperscar tissue, right? It's kind of like, right. you know, you've had the patient that has had a hysterectomy before and then you do a surgery on them and there's like no adhesion. You're like, really? Was anyone even here before? And then someone who had like an inguinal hernia repair and their abdomen is caked with adhesion. Yeah, it's terrible. So yeah. some people do scar more for whatever reason. Absolutely. Uh, not unlike, you know, keloids on the skin or whatever. So yeah, I think in those patients, I've gotten people that were close, like they were really considering like, okay, maybe I'll dilate and then we kind of made it through. And I, I usually, I try to wait about 12 weeks before I go back in there. Sure. But I can't say that I really have data to back that up. Yeah. You know, just really just the experience of like, it almost always gets better. So just really wait it out unless you're miserable. And uh, most, most of the time we've made it through and you know, it's two out of 300. It's not, it's not very common in compared to, you know, the Nissan data. I mean, it's, it's not comparable. I mean, it's, it's a whole different world. You know, it's interesting as, you know, I've, you know, built a bit of a reputation of doing the, the redos, the, the harder ones, uh, people that have had Nissans that have failed. And then we can, we can do a TIF procedure on top of that or re-repair their hiatal hernia that may have occurred yeah. or whatever. Um, and sort of, you know, in doing that, um, I'm trying to thought, um, oh, th- with the dilation, uh, as, they get older as these patients that got Nissans in the nineties, as they're becoming octogenarians and, 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 you know, septuagenarians, I'm finding that they did well initially and their side effects were at least reasonable. I'm finding they're getting dysphagia as they get older, you know, as presbyesophagus kind of starts getting in and we right. see some esophagus tra- gets weaker and less coordinated. They're having right. trouble getting past that wrap. Yeah. So I, you know, three or four patients a year that I see that I, basically take down their wrap. Right. Uh, and I find it's almost, it's a, a poor man's heller myotomy, if you will, where, yeah. uh, almost pseudo achalasia, where basically if you just, basically if you just cut the stitches and convert them to a toupee, they generally get pretty good improvement, which is just an interesting thing that, uh, that I've noticed. And I, I think because of the way that the TIF is constructed, the way that you just don't see the initial dysphagia, you don't have that prolonged period of getting them back to regular food. I don't think we're going to see that as the people that are getting TIFFs now get in 30, 40 years down the road. Yeah, I don't, I don't see that happening, but you never know. You know. Of course, right, yeah. right. Time will have to tell. Uh, yeah, the, the perspective of today versus yesterday is, uh, is always much better. All right, so um, let's talk mesh just a little bit. Uh, All right. We had, a, we had a really fun dinner a couple of years ago where 
Yeah, there was a whole, God, there was probably like 80, 100 surgeons at that dinner. Right. Uh, and you presented the no mesh side of the argument. And I, I cannot remember who presented the mesh side of the argument. Do you remember who that was by any chance? I don't know. Uh, it was a surgeon from El Paso. Um, Sounds right. I'm blanking on his name right now. I couldn't come up with it either. But Acosta. Oh, good job. That sounds right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that sounds right. Interesting. Dr. Acosta. So, um, and this is where, like, my passion for robotics, I was able to take um, a course out in L.A. from a fairly famous surgeon uh, that, uh, and he was showing laparoscopic approach, and he was very passionate about mesh. Um, And... He had an interesting approach. So he would basically, he would pair the hiatus. He really stressed the importance of the mediastinal dissection. Um, And that's something that, frankly, in my training, I had not really been as exposed to before. And so that helped me tremendously, really getting the the, uh, the mediastinal exposure and bringing down the intra-abdominal esophagus. So that was a huge, huge plus for me in terms of the course. And then he used... Pledgeted sutures. So again, for the for the patients out there, basically a, a bit of a cloth guard for the suture so that it doesn't act like a guillotine or a saw. And so he used pledgeted sutures in a mattress fashion at the hiatus. All right. And then he would, and this was again, this would have been two thousand ten ish, give or take. And then he would um, fire that protacker <laughs> that we all used to yeah. use back in the day and just kind of cement the mesh in place and then put glue on it. Um, and uh, that was kind of his approach. And I watched it and I, I really, really appreciated the first part and really getting that, that hiatal dissection and the mediastinal dissection portion. Huge, huge thing. And then uh, a couple other tricks with regard to large parasophageal or hernia repairs were hugely important to the way I practice and operate now, just starting at one o'clock position being a much easier starting point for large hiatals. And um, anyway, so uh, I remember sitting there, and this is just right as I'm getting into robotics, right? I was about a year into it at that point and starting to get fairly facile with the device. And I was like, well, why not just take the mesh and use that as pledges. So rather than sewing in pledges, which when you pledges are often used in cardiac surgery, uh, for example, and the idea is that um, for arteries and veins that are a little bit fragile, the pledge will protect the vein. Okay, and so the same idea, sort of with the the diaphragm, when you're repairing it, you're repairing muscle, and then that muscle then has to contract, and so the idea is that sometimes a suture can kind of tear through the muscle some. And so he put the pledges on to prevent that and then sort of cemented it with the mesh. mesh. And so then my idea was, why not just use the mesh as the pledge it? So repair the, the, the defect and then put the mesh in place. And so uh, we were talking, there's about five or six other surgeons at the time. We kind of talked about it and what we all kind of thought was a brilliant idea. Because it was my idea. Of course, it must have been brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And then, uh, and then interestingly, uh, we presented it to the surgeon who uh, immediately thought it was not maybe the best idea. The worst idea ever. Yeah. Eh, kind of more of a him and Han and, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, but anyway, he does good work. So I, I'm not going to throw any stones. I'm not going to mention his name. But in terms of uh, doing that, then I, I really, I changed literally that day. When I went home, the next one I did, I did that way. And what I found is doing that over a dilator that's roughly the same size as the the device, the TIFF device, the, right. the uh, uh, esophagus device. Um, I've not had the issues with dysphagia. 
they do have more. I'm going to totally accept that. They do have a little bit more dysphagia than someone that gets a TIF procedure all by themselves or someone that only gets a hiatal hernia repair without mesh. But my experience has been that I'm just not seeing the recurrences. And I can't tell you data because unfortunately I'm just a general surgeon out in the community. So it's not like I'm collecting it and I've moved around a little bit, so I, I can't really access those patients, but I'm just not seeing them coming back. When I see them come back at all, it's for something else. They find me because it's their gallbladder. Or I've had one or two where, especially early on, maybe the, especially with the, 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 the early devices, maybe it flattened out a little bit and just needs to be tightened a little bit. But I'm not having to come back and re-repair their hernias. Matter of fact, I'm thinking I've only done two. Now, that's I can't say they haven't gone somewhere else because that's sure. certainly possible. But that's been my experience. And doing it robotically with a horizontal mattress stitch through the mesh, then through the muscle, back to the mesh, and then back all the way through and then tying it, um, boy, I've had a lot of success with it. And... I wish I was more of a, a academic type guy because I literally think I could publish a study that would be like 95%. Yeah, that's the thing. You got to publish that data. And I know, I know. You know, we both we both started out as community surgeons and we talk about the academics, which really part of their career is publishing things. And the weird thing is, is I sort of put a foot in, I, I still have a foot in community, but now I have also a foot in academics because I'm, I'm publishing fairly regularly. I've published a few articles and now I'm involved in a registry and, and we are looking at those sorts of things. Um, but you know, if you look at what has been published, mm-hmm. it's just very difficult to come up with papers that really show long-term results and the pa- papers that do have long-term results, their results are not very good with mesh. And no, I totally agree with that. And, I- and, and so that's, that's the only thing that guided me. I did have a few experiences where I was like, well, this wasn't a very good experience for the patient. Um, so between that and the literature that is out there, I was kind of like, well, I'm not going to try this anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, to your point, there are, somebody does have to try it. Somebody does have to look for an answer to that. And the reality is, is the research that I've published has shown that it really is the hiatal hernia now that is the problem that we have to fix. We fixed the fund application part because TIF works fantastic it's durable it works really well mm-hmm. very few side effects um and where it does fail then and, you know something we haven't the mentioned hernia fails right and something we haven't really mentioned a whole lot today but basically it's also very safe um, super safe you know uh, we were i as part of this paper that i wrote i went and took a look at the safety data and, and the serious complication rate was something less than 0.4 percent and the safety rate for most Nissen published data is 2.75%. Right. So you're looking at a six-fold improvement in safety. Yeah. Uh, just incredible improvement in, in reflux procedures in general when you look at a safety rate like that. No, it, it is very, very safe. And uh, that's been my experience as well. I think that, um, you know, for me with the, with, with the mesh... Um, I think my, uh, you know, it's, it's easy being in the crowd throwing stones at glass houses, right? <laughs> and uh, I think that uh, for me, 
and maybe this is just ego, right? It, it could be. I, I, I will fully admit it could just be ego. I'm, I can look in the mirror. But for me, I've not seen someone put it in the way I'm putting it in, right? I feel like people, they're tacking it in. They're using those C things or whatever. Right. I've even heard of people just, just gluing it and then not doing anything with it. And I, like, I think that does nothing. Well, you know? and to that point, I mean, the problem that we we're working through is there's no standard sizing. There's right. no way to measure. We're not talking the same language, right? All those things we were working through yep. to come to, okay, this is how we're going to measure it. And this is how we're going to talk about it. And this is how we're going to define it. And this is when we do the repair. So the next step is exactly where you are. How are we going to make this more durable? And it's going to be, it's going to have to be something other than just suturing. Yeah. So one or the other, it's going to be mesh. What is the mesh made out of mm-hmm. and how are you going to put it in? So now, I mean, you're ahead of the curve on that data just based on experience because you've been doing it all these years and yep. I have not been, I don't, I don't have a word to say about it, Yeah. But, but you can share your experiences now. Well, and hopefully this will maybe get some people uh, interested in it. Uh, I need to get the academic guys. I just, uh, I wish I had the time to do that. I just, yeah, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of paperwork. It's a lot of uh, nights in the office digging through charts because you didn't remember to write something down. Right. And I, and I, and I don't have the ancillary staff to really do that so yeah. that I could actually still practice. And I mean, then, that's, that's really the advantage that academic surgeons have is 100%. that they're provided with residents, research staff, grants, yeah, yeah, yeah. right. St- statisticians. So but just to that, to that point, uh, the last time that we all got together, uh, in, in Vegas with the, that meeting, the TIFF meeting, if you will, um, uh, you may not remember, but I, I presented this technique and, um, to be fair, it was presented in a way at the time that we really couldn't talk about TIFF and hiatal hernias at the same right, time. Right. So they kind of tucked it in a spot where everyone else was talking about their problem cases. <laughs> so here I am presenting what I think is the answer for hiatal hernia. And then everyone's kind of going, well, have you tried this? And I'm like, hang on. No, no, no this is the way. <laughs> right. So I, I'm interested to see if we, if I could, I really want them to have that conference again because I think that was tremendously valuable, uh, both in bringing people that might be p- potentially passionate about about the TIF procedure, but in addition, getting you know us old guys together and kind of learning more about. And maybe maybe this will be a good audience for that too. But just kind of learning from each other and some of these things that you know you've talked about tonight. Not, yeah, I'm sure as heck going to start talking to my patients, you know, particularly the ones that are a little bit frustrated with maybe swallowing afterwards with esophageal rehab and stuff. So, um, you know, this kind of thing is just tremendously valuable. And so I'm hopeful we can get back together and I can represent that uh, and get some people that are more academically minded to, uh, to investigate it. Yeah. To take off on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. Cool. Well, I, uh, I think, uh, it's been about an hour, which is not too bad. And I, yeah, uh, it's been fun. It's been super fun. This is something, uh, walk down memory lane for us. A little bit of a walk down memory lane. And, uh, gosh, I, you know, it's, it's funny. Every time you get two people that are passionate about something similar, you know, there's, there's a lot to be learned a lot that we can kind of come together and learn from and, you know, improve. And I think that's uh, one of the good things about uh, hopefully a forum like this. And, um, yeah. So again, thank you very much, Dr. Eddie. And I appreciate it. And thanks uh, for inviting me. Oh yeah. Yeah. Very kind of you. Oh yeah. Well, I, again, I appreciate you uh, to making the trip for the, to the home studio. It's, it's a little distracting in here, but, uh, my wife lets me decorate any way I want. It's very nice. <laughs> 
All right. Well, thanks a lot. Well, this has been the uh, the first episode of uh, Dr. Chris, the surgery guy. And we're going to uh, hopefully do this roughly every two weeks. And uh, I want to thank Approaching Nirvana and Andrew for the music, um, both the intro and the outro, as well as some of the uh, background music you may have heard while we were talking. Thank you very much, and we'll see you in two weeks. Bye.